Over the next two or three weeks, I'm going to talk a little bit about a subject that you may already be over. I want to talk about politics, but not in the way that everybody else is talking about politics. I realize that as soon as I say that, some of you just kind of sigh because we're all so fatigued by everything that's happening around us. But the good news is the God who was there and the God who is here wants to engage in our politics today. Now, I promise I'm not going to talk about party. I'm not going to talk about policy. But I'm going to talk about the presiding presence of God in our world and in our systems today. A long time ago, hundreds of years before Christ, The prophet Isaiah said this, and he's talking to people who are walking in darkness, just to give a little context. A great light is coming. For unto us a child is born, a son will be given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Eternal Father, and the Prince of peace. The weight of the government will be upon his shoulders. Now that is a huge statement. The theological implications of that are staggering. And over the next two or three weeks, I want to delve into that a little bit and remind us of what it means that God provides over us over our nation, and over our world. I know it raises all kinds of questions. I'll try and answer some of them. But if I don't, please don't get mad at me because I'm coming with a spirit of grace just wanting to remind us all that in the midst of chaos, we have an ever-present help in our trouble. As we talk about the sovereignty of God, as we talk about the government weighing on Jesus' shoulders, I also want to say that because God is in control, that doesn't mean that we should be distant from the conversations. Because God is sovereign, it is actually, I believe, more important that we study and we see and we look and we pray in this area of politics. Politics is so divisive. And my concern is that the divisiveness of our political time can seep in and divide the church. And so today I want to share with you from Philippians chapter 2 some words of the Apostle Paul as he reminds people walking in darkness of the Lordship of Christ. If you want to follow along, turn to Philippians chapter 2. Some of those beautiful words in Scripture. We're going to look starting at verse 1 till about verse 11, where Paul is calling to a divided, broken, dark-walking people that there is hope beyond what they see right now. 
This week, as I was doing some study, I came across some words of a hero in the faith of mine from over 250 years ago, from John Wesley. Wesley says this in his journal in 1774. He says, I met today some people who were about to vote in the ensuing election, and I advised them to vote without fee or reward for the person that they judge the most worthy. Secondly, to speak no ill of the person that they voted against. And thirdly, to take care of their spirits that they were not sharpened against those who voted on the other side. Those are good words for today. Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 1. As we walk through this scripture, I want to make a statement today. Everybody's making statements today. So many sound bites, so many of them I don't care for. But I want to speak to uh, what this statement is from the scripture. Paul starts off. Listen carefully to this, follow along. Open a tab on your computer if you're looking at home or find us on the YouVersion app. You'll see the scripture and some notes there. Paul says this. If there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship with the Spirit, If any affection and mercy, then make my joy complete by thinking the same way. What he's doing as he begins this passage is he's making sure that the church is with him. And he's saying this is the litmus test that you need to take if you listen to the rest of what I'm going to say. So before we start, let me just offer you this litmus test. If you can answer yes to any of these if statements, then the rest of this message is for you. So Paul's saying, he's saying, have you ever been encouraged by anyone representing Christ? Show of hands, have you ever been encouraged by anyone representing Christ? If that's you, just type yes on the screen. A lot of hands went up here. <laughs> so, sorry to tell you, that means you got to res- listen to the rest of the message. <laughs> if you have received any consolation from love, he's saying if you've ever received love from the church, from a representative of Christ, then this is for you. Anyone represented and to that? If any encouragement, if any consolation from love, if any fellowship with the Holy Spirit, this is a big one. This church here that was so alive and figuring out what it meant to represent Jesus did so because they had the Holy Spirit in them. And the Holy Spirit was nudging them and leading them and prompting them and drawing things to their attention and to their mind. So if you've been in fellowship with the Holy Spirit, then this is for you. Anyone been in fellowship with the Holy Spirit? You know, honestly, I I must have canceled preaching through this service about 10 times 
But then something could come on the radio or I'd read something that just said, hey, you need to, you need to talk about that. I, I, I attribute that to a fellowship with the Spirit. If you have any encouragement, if you have any consolation of love, any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, some versions will say tenderness and compassion. What Paul is saying is if you have felt cared for, by the church, and consider yourself part of the the family of God, then this message is for you. So all of us can raise our hands, whether we're here, whether we're online, and say, yeah, I meet some of those categories. If you've been encouraged, if you receive the consolation from love, if you have fellowship with the Spirit, If you received affection and mercy, then make my joy complete by thinking the same way. He's talking here about something we touched on last week. If you've heard something, you've got to do something about it. If you receive something, then you have to give something. He's saying, my my joy isn't complete because you've received all this stuff, but you haven't given back. You can make my joy complete. Paul's joy is coming not from a separation, but from a sameness. He says, I want you to think the same way. And what he's saying here is not that we should think the same politically, not that we should agree necessarily on the same policies, But he's saying that we as the church who received this stuff from God should think first from the perspective and the heart and the lens of God as revealed in his scripture. Now I realize that there's all kinds of interpretations about what this book says about what positions we should take. But what Paul is saying is if you've received something then it's primarily important that you think first, not politically, but spiritually, that you are united in Christ. You seek to have the mind of Christ. You vote because of your relationship with Christ. He gives four ifs, and then he gives four affirmations, four four things that that he attributes to to harmony, this this like-mindedness. He says, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, by thinking about Christ first. You should have the same love. You should be united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others more important. What he's saying to the church was that if they are connected with Christ, there is a unity that they share that transcends everything else. It's a unity in Christ and by Christ and for Christ. Paul is saying that we as people of Jesus must unite together. Should we unite around party? It's impossible. 
Should we unite around policy? That's not what he's saying. I believe he's saying that we need to put Christ first. We need to trust God that the government ultimately does weigh on his shoulders. We need to get involved. We need to research. We need to vote. But in the midst of doing that, we must not forget that we belong to Christ and we're connected to each other because of that shared connection to Christ. He's talking about unity. And he goes on to talk a little bit more about unity. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. But we live in a world, don't we, where selfishness rules, where selfishness has become our guide. We, we are so full of our, our self-importance. It's all about me getting what I want and me being right. And so Paul starts off by saying, do nothing out of that selfish drive. I was reading a study this week by a sociologist called David Brooks. In 1950, he did a survey over five years of 10,000 teenagers about how important they felt, and he measured how self-absorbed they were against this, this scale he put together. In the 1950s, 12% of teenagers felt that they were the most important person in the world. He did the, story, the survey again just before he died in 1990. You want to know what the numbers were? Over 85%. And I'm part of that generation who's grown up thinking that my thoughts ultimately matter most. But Paul says, hey, if you're part of the church, if you're representing Jesus, if you're putting him first, then you must do nothing, including voting, out of selfish ambition. Voting should be a selfless task. Do not consider others more important than you. Why? Because we're, we're putting others first. We're not looking only to our own interest, but to the interests of others. The context here isn't how to vote, but that's some real good voting advice. As you're looking, as you're reading, as you're studying, as you're praying, do nothing out of selfish ambition, but in humility, consider others more important than yourself. Everyone should look not to their own interests, but also to the interests of others. And I implore you as part of the church of Jesus Christ, people who represent him, as we walk through this difficult, messy election season, do so with humility. Humility, said C.S. Lewis, is not thinking of yourself less, but thinking less of... No, did I say that right? Larry, you got a phone call. Humility... Is not thinking less of yourself, but be 
Look it up. Look it up. My mind is going blank. It's really good. C.S. Lewis quote on humility. You'll find it. Google it. If you're at home, do it right now because it's, it's good. But the first thing I want to say, the first thing that Paul is saying, I believe, is that we unite together. Doesn't mean we have to vote the same. Doesn't mean we have to think the same. That would be horrible. It just means for the church of Jesus Christ, we put Jesus first. I realize that means different things to different people. Maybe that's part of God's glorious kingdom, and that's okay. But put Jesus first. So I believe Paul is saying, the statement he's making, we unite together. Verse 5 around Christ's unique qualifications. Our unity comes first of all through Jesus. And this is what Paul says about him. Adopt the same attitude of that of Jesus Christ, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. What Paul is saying here is that ultimately, not only is our unity around Christ, but our focus should be Christ because he is the one who is uniquely called and qualified to lead us. Every other leader in our life must be secondary to his leadership. Why? He came from God in the form of God. What that means is that when he came from heaven and became human, he, uh, he morphed, he, he transformed, he kept the essence of who he was. But he did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. He didn't need to be the boss man. He didn't get into any power struggle. In fact, he laid that power down and said, I have, I have come to serve. He didn't want to exploit. Jesus never shames. Jesus never belittles. Instead, his leadership and his lordship is marked by sacrifice. He emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. He could have come as a prince. He could have come as a king. He could have come to a palace 
could have come to a courtroom. But he came as one of us. All the way from the glory of heaven to the brokenness of earth to become like one of us. I want to follow a man of humility. I want to follow a person of sacrifice. He became obedient. Obedient to the plan and the will and the purpose of God. Became obedient all the way to death. Paul says, let me not just say he was obedient to death. Let let me tell you how obedient he was. Even death on a cross. There's this uh, thought that many outside the church and some within the church have spoken about, about how Christians are today. And, and, And some writers talk about this idea of moral therapeutic deism. And the idea behind that is that there are many in the church whose view of God, the deist, is just that he is moral and wants us to be moral. And he is therapeutic in that he helps us to want to get better. And and that's our understanding of who Jesus is. But Paul is saying Jesus is so much more than that. He is uniquely qualified to lead us and guide us. Because of his humility, because of his sacrifice, because he's obedient to God, even death on a cross. I often receive all kinds of emails from folks wanting to sell stuff to me and to the church. And one of these retailers the other day was having a clear-out sale, and so I get the the emails, I always try and sign up for the clear out sale emails. But this one says, we got cheap crosses available. And something inside me was just repulsed by that. Because there's nothing cheap about the cross. We serve a king who is humble enough and sacrificial enough and obedient enough to go to a cross, to die the most painful of deaths for our sake. That's the kind of king we follow. That's the kind of leader we have. Jesus is uniquely qualified to lead us. Here's my statement. We unite together around his unique qualifications. As we submit to his ultimate lordship. Paul says, you can be different, vote different, think different, understand scripture different. But let Jesus be first and be united around that truth. Understand that ultimately, whichever leader we have, needs to be a secondary leader in our life to that of the leadership, leadership and lordship of Jesus Christ. 
because he was humble enough and he sacrificed enough to go to death, even death on a cross. But as we know, that death on the cross wasn't the end. Three days later, he rose again. And that's why Paul goes on to say, for this reason, God highly exalted him. That word highly is a a strange word in the original text. It means like super uh, exalted, like hyper exalted. What Paul is trying to communicate is, hey, if you can reach this high and this is your view of God, well, then you need to kind of raise it even more. Because he has been super exalted. And he has been given the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We unite together around Jesus' unique qualifications and we submit to his ultimate lordship. That's the first statement I want to make around politics to the church. We unite together around Jesus' unique qualification as we submit to his ultimate leadership. He is highly exalted. He has been given a name above every name. A name and an influence and a power that has presided over hundreds and hundreds of generations. A name that is provocative for all, but brings hope to many. A name that has power unlike any kind of power that our politics has today. Under this name, one day every knee will bow. There's been a lot of talk about kneeling recently. That's a discussion I don't want to get into right now. But the truth is that one day we will kneel before God. For some, that kneeling will be a very pleasant, joyous, joyful moment. For others, it will be in reverence and fear. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. What Paul is talking about here is he's uh, talking to some uh, great, strong Christian theology that we accept and acknowledge Jesus as the Lord of our life as we confess with our mouth and as we believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord. Why do we do this to the glory of God the Father. In an election season that is so divisive, we unite together as people of Jesus with all of our differences, with all of our affiliations, 
with, with all of our understanding and lack of understanding of policies around his unique qualifications and we submit to his ultimate leadership. We unite together around Christ's unique qualifications as we submit to his ultimate leadership. Why? It says in verse 11, why? To the and for the glory of God the Father. He starts off the scripture by saying, hey, it's not about you. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Consider others more important than yourself. Don't look to your own interests, but to the interests of others. And then he concludes it by saying, for the glory of God. And that's the pivot that a lot of us need to make when it comes to the issue of politics. Not am I going to get my way, not am I going to get what I want, but am I thinking, am I voting, am I engaging for the glory of God? The God who cares for all people. The God who loves passionately and deeply enough to go to a cross for us. Am I voting for the generations to come? Am I voting for people who aren't like me? We don't vote and engage out of selfish ambition. We engage for the glory of God. Here's what I want to leave you with today. This first statement as we talk about politics. I'm sorry if I offended you. That is not my goal at all. I just want to remind you that in this difficult time, we must unite together around the unique qualifications of Jesus and first of all, submit to his ultimate leadership.